0: She just like, feed me.
1: Oh, well, there is that. 3.30 oh. in the afternoon? Nobody gets fed 3.30 in the afternoon. I know.
0: Wait, are we starting? Oh. No.
1: Are we yes. starting? Jake, are yeah, you we're kidding doing me? It. Oh, my <laughs> God. Hey, everybody. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where we make today make sense, uh, whenever Jake Cherry is ready, clearly. Uh, <laughs> so, Kimberly's out. Uh, Rima Craze is in. Uh, this is Uncomfortable Lizard Podcast. Let's get the plug in there. Hi, Rima. Thank
0: you. Hello. How's it going? Um, thanks for having me. This is What Do You Want to Know Wednesday, where we answer questions that you, our listeners, have sent in. If you have questions about the economy, by the way, or business or tech, you can send it to us at Making Me Smart at Marketplace.org, or you can leave us a voicemail at 508 UB Smart. All right. So you want to take the first so, question, Carl? Here we go. I,
1: well, yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the first question, I'm going to set up the first question, you're going to answer it, I think. So here's the deal. Um, the yield curve is inverted again and or still take your pick and we can go over an inverted yield curve, maybe in some other show. Um, here's voicemail about recessions. Go. Hey, this is Maggie from Okeechobee, Florida, and I wanted to have you make me smart about recessions. I graduated high school in 2007 and got my first corporate job that summer after. So needless to say, my only experience with recessions is pretty traumatic, to be honest. But mm-hmm. with everyone keeps saying that recessions might be coming, um, no one's actually defined what that means. Is there a common thing that happens in recessions? Is there something like what's a normal recession? Or is mm-hmm. what I experienced when I first got into the job market, is that a normal recession? Is there not a normal recession and every recession is different? Make me smart. Thanks. Bye. Mm-hmm. Good question.
0: Great question. I'll take this one. So Um, Yeah, I think a lot of people are probably wondering this as they're seeing all those headlines and listening to the reports. Um, Like you, Maggie, I graduated around the same time um, from high school. So I feel like I definitely have specific images that come to mind whenever the R word comes up. Um, So, okay, let's talk about the definition. Uh, According to the National Bureau of Economic Research, it is defined as, quote, a significant decline in economic activity. That is spread across the economy and lasts more than a few months. Uh, Another sort of popular rule of thumb you'll hear is that a recession is two consecutive quarters of decline in GDP. Uh, So yeah, that is the recession. Uh, But I think it's kind of useless to try to define like a quote unquote normal recession, um, especially because like if you just look at the one we had in 2020 and compare it to the one in 2008, they are very different. Uh, The one 2008 obviously lasted months. 2020 was just a couple of months. Um, But I was reading the CNBC article that looks at all of the American recessions since World War II, and it it did point out some commonalities, um, and they include, you know, typically lasting six to 12 months, three to four million jobs are usually lost, unemployment can get as high as 6%. Um, But of course, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that's what's going to happen if we fall into recession. Some economists actually predict that if we do go into one, it'll be like less severe than a quote unquote typical one. Um, But Maggie, your question, you ask how a recession feels. And the very unsatisfying answer is that it kind of depends. Like a lot of it comes down to how the government prepares, also how you and your employer prepare. Um, If you just look at the 2008 recession, you know, a lot of companies obviously floundered, but some were able to make it through just because they were a lot more intentional in their decision making and they were more financially prepared. Um, I should also note, you know, that a lot of the times when we talk about recessions, we talk about how they look, how they'll unfold. Uh, I think it's just as important to consider the recovery. So, you know, just if you look at the COVID recession in 2020, you, you heard a lot about the U and K shaped recoveries and without getting so much into the weeds of that, basically those kinds of recoveries can show how certain industries and people pull out of a recession while others Get stuck in it. And, you know, that usually happens across class, racial, geographic or industry lines. Um, So, yeah, the way different groups recover from a recession can expose and can, unfortunately, worsen inequality. So that's my spiel. So that's a good
1: spiel. And the short answer is there is no typical recession, right? There is no typical recession.
0: Exactly. Uh,
1: all right. What's all next? right.
0: Next question. So um, here's a voicemail following up on last week's show.
1: Hey, this okay. is Joe from Buck Creek, Indiana. follow on question mm-hmm. Why do political ads seem to be or get around the false advertising laws that are on the books for advertisers? Mm-hmm. Nope. Thanks. Bye. How great is it that Joe was driving down the street or the road or the highway and just like, I'm going to call in a question. Yeah. That's what I'm going to do. All right. Uh, oh, I sorry. So look, he, he, yeah, the, the short answer to the uh, question is that political ads are protected speech under the First Amendment. And so false advertising laws, generally speaking, don't apply. And the Supreme Court has historically put a really high bar on limiting political speech in light of the First Amendment, Right. Um, mm-hmm. NPR did a whole series on this, they talked to Tom Wheeler, he's advocated for more and better disclosures, First Amendment guy, and he says there is a First Amendment hurdle that has to be crossed, and that has traditionally proven pretty high insofar as making judgments about factual statements. Look, they are technically banned, but ain't nobody gonna go after politicians for this, right? Mm-hmm. Cable channels sometimes do reject ads, broadcast channels generally don't because they are the public airwaves, right, and they are obliged under federal law to provide access to those public airwaves to political candidates um there have been some nibbling around the edges right i mean I, it was it was a while ago but i remember when i'm you know joe biden and i approve this message right and that was a, an effort to talk about funding those ads and disclaimers in those ads and accuracy in those kinds of ads and, and now it's just kind of boilerplate and everybody does it uh, while they go about saying whatever they want um mm-hmm. it's you know it's the first amendment uh, for all of its um uh many benefits also, you know, provide some challenges when you're trying to have an informed debate about politics in this country. That's, so that's wild my that candidates can, yeah, can just
0: lie because yeah. <laughs> um, then at that yes. point, it becomes well, read, more read about. Yeah, 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 exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I feel like at that point, that's okay. become about conveying emotion the truth, but anyway well, they okay. they do
1: right. And that look, that's yeah. that's what that's what that's what it is, right? And the idea that we have now, you know, informed factual political debate, certainly in the last five years in this country is that just it's not credible, right? I mean, yeah. it's just not. yeah. yeah. Uh, all right, next question. here we go. This is Pete in Long Beach, and I had a question about the potential Albertson's and Kroger's merger. Mm-hmm. If the merger goes to the point where, the FTC and the DOJ need to look at um, potential antitrust issues, do they take into consideration um, just the overarching and, and cons, uh, price that consumers will pay, or do they consider things like access? And I'm specifically thinking about food deserts and the implications of potential store closings. Anyway, wanted to uh, see if you guys could make me smart. Thanks. Bye.
0: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Okay. I'll answer this one. I find this topic really interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so to back up, to give a little context, uh, the headline of this merger, at least, you know, from the POV of Kroger and Albertsons, is uh, that linking up will put them in a better competitive footing with the likes of Walmart and Amazon. Uh, And the companies are using market share and revenue to support that argument because, you know, we know that big box stores and heavy hitters, they can secure better deals with distributors, they can borrow more money cheaply, and they can, of course, undercut competition more easily. So we talked with experts who told us that uh, there's actually not surprisingly a lot of scholarship out there about how consolidation ultimately impacts pricing. But some older studies do show us that it's usually a worse deal for the consumer. Um, and Pete, you are totally right to ask about store footprint and local competition. Uh, some experts told the Wall Street Journal that's exactly what lawmakers and antitrust officials will be looking at when they consider the merger. Because uh, in a lot of markets, I mean, you know this, Kai. If you just drive around some neighborhoods in Los Angeles, the mm-hmm. two main grocery options are Ralphs, which is part of the Kroger family, yep. and Vons, which is part of Albertsons. They're they're everywhere. Um, So, yeah, antitrust enforcers in other cases have at least looked at the potential impacts at a local level, which includes considering market share and overlaps in certain areas. And with that in mind, Kroger and Albertsons uh, say they plan to divest in up to 650 stores. And regulators will want to know who's buying them because, you know, if they can't find buyers, the two operators have proposed spinning off hundreds of their stores into a new company. Uh, hmm. And in the past, I thought this was interesting, when Albertsons bought Safeway a few years back, it spun off some of its poor performing stores and sold them to another chain. And it wasn't long hmm. before that chain ended up going bankrupt. And so Albertsons turned yeah. around and actually bought the stores back. So yeah, there's that. Yeah. Um,
1: it's, all about, it's all about footprint and competition. That's an interesting little tidbit about Albertsons selling off some of its mm-hmm, older, less performing mm-hmm. stores. Classic, yeah, right. right? Classic.
0: <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. So, I think it's a question about credit scores.
1: Hi, okay. this is Bob from Bloomington, Indiana, and I just listened to your story on credit scores, and I'm wondering mm-hmm. what role uh, freezing your credit plays in your credit score. So, as a victim mm-hmm. of identity theft, I've since frozen my credit, how does that impact it? Keep it up, thanks. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a good and and totally reasonable question. The short answer is that freezing your credit score does not, freezing your credit report actually, does not influence or affect your uh, credit score, right? What it does is it blocks access to it by basically everybody um, and keeps a potential identity theft uh, situation from getting worse. Here's the thing though, there are some good guys that uh, access your credit score, insurance companies do, right? Um, It makes it tougher sometimes for you to establish other profiles on financial pages. And let me just say here, obviously, consult your own financial advisor if you're having any of these problems. But um, the short answer is, if you freeze your credit score, what you are doing is protecting yourself. You're not changing the formula and the calculation and the numbers that go into that credit score. So if you've gotten notified that you've been a victim of fraud, freeze your credit score, try to investigate, figure it out, right? And then as you start opening up again... Um, the ability for you to use your own credit score, right, to get a loan or a mortgage or a car loan or whatever, um, then you can sort of unfreeze and have some confidence that it's going to be, you know, better. But um, freezing your credit score doesn't affect your credit score. That's the mm-hmm. that's the bottom line. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Speaking of identity so theft. Um... Yes. Just gonna plug plug. This is uncomfortable. The show that I host for Marketplace. Sure. We recently did an episode that touches on that topic. Uh, it's also come up in our show multiple times over the last couple of years. We have this one episode called "A Lifelong Scam" um, about oh, identity wow. theft. Yeah. Just if you want to check it out. Um. And all right. On I think the platform we have, of your choice. Right. That's <laughs> yeah. The deal. Exactly. Spotify. Apple. All right. One more. Go ahead. Yeah. Um. All right. Here's an email from a listener, uh, Christina Ward. She wrote, "I have a New York specific question for you." How long right. can dollar-slice pizza parlors withstand inflation?
1: Oh, my God. Oh, yeah. my God. You, you, you know the you, answer, Guy? No, I do I, not know the answer. You do this, one. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Um Okay, so obviously, you know, uh, no secret, food prices are driving inflation. Um, so apparently, you know, with New York's dollar-slice joints, uh, there was this great deep dive from last year, and the New York Times says apparently yeah. it's already dying um, which I didn't realize it's a, it's a cutthroat mm-hmm. business apparently with small margins that rely on uh, moving a lot of pizzas. And so a lot of places have already raised their prices. Um, other businesses are accused of lowering quality or even like skimming wages to keep prices the same and stay above water. Um, if you, you know, if you want to go deeper into these the New York pizza economics, you can look at the pizza principle, which for 60 years has pegged the cost of a plain slice to the subway fare. Oh, um, man, and apparently, great. yeah, apparently they are no longer the same price this year. Um, hmm. and so this didn't just happen in the COVID era, you know, dollar slices took off in the great recession and, uh, apparently vice noted that inflation driven price hike, uh, price hike, there was a price hike back in 2018. Um, so the, the dollar pizzas don't exist anymore, apparently. Um,
1: yeah, I, bottom line, it's been a very long time since I've had a dollar slice of pizza in New York City. Let me just say, same. It's been a very I feel like long it's time. been ten years very at least. Um, yeah, at least. So yeah. there you go. Maybe I'll have some pizza for dinner. In fact, maybe we'll do pizza for dinner. I don't know. Anyway, plenty of old resident-
0: restaurants to choose from. <laughs> well, that's that, that's
1: that's right. <laughs> all right, we're done right. on this. What do you want to know Wednesday? Back tomorrow uh, to make you smart on the news of the day. We'll do a make me smile as well. I think it's Andy Euler who's in because Kimberly's off doing something fun. Um, Rima, mm-hmm. thanks for um, yeah. taking the time. Yeah, thanks for know? having
0: me. In the meantime, you can keep Bet. sending us your questions. Yeah, and our email is marketplace.org. You can e- or you can also leave us a voicemail at 508-UB-SMART.
1: Make Me Smart, which is this podcast is produced by Marissa Cabrera with help this week from Tony Wagner and Ellen Rolfes. She writes our newsletter, Courtney Bergseeker is our new producer for the program. Courtney, welcome.
0: Yeah, welcome. Today's show was engineered by Jake Cherry. Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Donna Tam is the director of On Demand. Bridget Bodner is off working on the new season of Million Bazillion.
1: That's what she says. That's what she says.